0: Hello, and welcome to Bominable Bominations. I'm your host, Thomas, and this is the place for serialization of of turn-of-the-20th-century horror and discussion of other such topics. Welcome back to our ongoing serialization of The House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson. 13. The Trap in the Great Cellar. I suppose I must have swooned, for the next thing I remember, I opened my eyes, and all was dusk. I was lying on my back, with one leg doubled under the other, and Pepper was licking my ears. I felt horribly stiff, and my leg was numb from the knee downward. For a few minutes I lay, thus, in a dazed condition. Then, slowly, I struggled to a sitting position, and looked about me. It had stopped raining, but the trees still dripped dismally. From the pit came a continuous murmur of running water. I felt cold and shivery. My clothes were sodden, and I ached all over. Very slowly the life came back into my numbed leg and after a little I essayed to stand up. This I managed at the second attempt but I was very tottery and particularly weak. It seemed to me that I was going to be ill and I made shift to stumble my way toward the house. My steps were erratic and my head confused. At each step that I took "'sharp pains shot through my limbs. "'I had gone, perhaps, some thirty paces, "'when a cry from Pepper drew my attention, "'and I turned stiffly toward him. "'The old dog was trying to follow me, "'but could come no further, owing to the rope with which I had hauled him up, "'being still tied round his body, "'the other end not having been unfastened from the tree. "'For a moment I fumbled with the knots weakly, but they were wet and hard and I could do nothing. Then I remembered my knife, and in a moment the rope was cut. How I reached the house I scarcely know, and of the days that followed I remember still less. Of one thing I am certain, that had it not been for my sister's untiring love and nursing, I had not been writing at this moment. When I recovered my senses, it was to find that I had been in bed for nearly two weeks. Yet another week passed before I was strong enough to totter out into the gardens. Even then, I was not able to walk so far as the pit. I would have liked to ask my sister how high the water had risen, but felt it was wiser not to mention the subject to her. Indeed, since then... I have made a rule never to speak to her about the strange things that happen in this great old house. It was not until a couple of days later that I managed to get across to the pit. There I found that, in my few weeks absence, there had been wrought a wondrous change. Instead of the three parts filled ravine, I looked out upon a great lake whose placid surface reflected the light, coldly. The water had risen to within half a dozen feet of the pit edge. Only in one part was the lake disturbed, and that was above the place where, far down under the silent waters, yawned the entrance to the vast underground pit. Here, there was a continuous bubbling and, occasionally, a curious sort of sobbing gurgle would find its way up from the depth. Beyond these, there was nothing to tell of the things that were hidden beneath. As I stood there, it came to me how wonderfully things had worked out. The entrance to the place whence the swine creatures had come was sealed up, by a power that made me feel there was nothing more to fear from them. And yet, with the feeling, there was a sensation that, now, I should never learn anything further of the place from which those dreadful things had come. It was completely shut off and concealed from human curiosity forever. Strange, in the knowledge of that underground hellhole, how apposite has been the naming of the pit. One wonders how it originated and when. Naturally, one concludes that the shape and depth of the ravine would suggest the name Pit. Yet, is it not possible that it has, all along, held a deeper significance? A hint, could one but have guessed of the greater, more stupendous pit that lies far down in the earth beneath this old house. Under this house, even now, the idea is strange and terrible to me, for I have proved beyond doubt that the pit yawns right below the house, which is evidently supported somewhere above the center of it upon a tremendous arched roof of solid rock. It happened in this wise that, having occasion to go down to the cellars, the thought occurred to me to pay a visit to the great vault where the trap is situated and see whether everything was as I had left it. Reaching the place, I walked slowly up the center until I came to the trap. There it was with the stones piled upon it, just as I had seen it last. I had a lantern with me, and the idea came to me that now would be a good time to investigate whatever lay under the great oak slab. Placing the lantern on the floor, I tumbled the stones off the trap and, grasping the ring, pulled the door open. As I did so, The cellar became filled with the sound of a murmurous thunder that rose from far below. At the same time, a damp wind blew into my face, bringing with it a load of fine spray. Therewith I dropped the trap, hurriedly, with a half-frightened feeling of wonder. For a moment I stood puzzled. I was not particularly afraid. The haunting fear of the swine-things had left me long ago, but I was certainly nervous and astonished. Then a sudden thought possessed me, and I raised the ponderous door with a feeling of excitement. Leaving it standing upon its end, I seized the lantern and, kneeling down, thrust it into the opening. As I did so, the moist wind and spray drove in my eyes, making me unable to see for a few moments. Even when my eyes were clear, I could not distinguish anything below me, save darkness and whirling spray. Seeing that it was useless to expect to make out anything with the light so high, I felt in my pockets for a piece of twine with which to lower it further into the opening. Even as I fumbled, the lantern slipped from my fingers and hurtled down into the darkness. For a brief instant, I watched its fall, and saw the light shine on a tumult of white foam, some eighty or a hundred feet below me. Then it was gone. My sudden surmise was correct, and now I knew the cause of the wet and noise. The great cellar was connected with the pit, by means of the trap which opened right above it, and the moisture was the spray rising from the water falling into the depths. In an instant I had an explanation of certain things that had hitherto puzzled me. Now I could understand why the noises, on the first night of the invasion, had seemed to rise directly from under my feet. And the chuckle that had sounded when I first opened the trap. Evidently, some of the swine things must have been right beneath me. Another thought struck me. Were the creatures all drowned? Would they drown? I remembered how unable I had been to find any traces to show that my shooting had been really fatal. Had they life, As we understood life, or were they ghouls? These thoughts flashed through my brain as I stood in the dark, searching my pockets for matches. I had the box in my hand now, and, striking a light, I stepped to the trapdoor and closed it. Then I piled the stones back upon it, after which I made my way out from the cellars. And so, I suppose, the water goes on, thundering down into that bottomless hell pit. Sometimes, I have an inexplicable desire to go down to that great cellar, open the trap, and gaze into the impenetrable, spray-damp darkness. At times, the desire becomes almost overpowering in its intensity. It is not mere curiosity that prompts me, but more as though some unexplained influence were at work. Still, I never go, and intend to fight down the strange longing and crush it, even as I would the unholy thought of self-destruction. The idea of some intangible force being exerted may seem reasonless. Yet my instinct warns me that it is not so. In these things, reason seems to me less to be trusted than instinct. One thought there is, in closing, that impresses itself upon me with ever-growing insistence. It is that I live in a very strange house, a very awful house and I have begun to wonder whether I am doing wisely in staying here. Yet, if I left, where could I go, and still obtain the solitude, and the sense of her presence? Footnote 1 An apparently unmeaning interpolation. I can find no previous reference in the manuscript. To this matter... It becomes clearer, however, in the light of succeeding incidents. Editor. End of footnote. That alone make my life bearable. Fourteen. The Sea of Sleep. For a considerable period after the last incident which I have narrated in my diary... I had serious thoughts of leaving this house, and might have done so, but for the great and wonderful thing of which I am about to write. How well I was advised in my heart when I stayed on here, spite of those visions and sights of unknown and unexplainable things, for had I not stayed then I had not seen again the face of her I loved. Yes, though few know it, none now save my sister Mary, I have loved and, ah, me, lost. I would write down the story of those sweet old days, but it would be like the tearing of old wounds. Yet, after that which has happened, what need have I to care? for she has come to me out of the unknown. Strangely, she warned me, warned me passionately against this house, begged me to leave it, but admitted, when I questioned her, that she could not have come to me had I been elsewhere. Yet, in spite of this, still she warned me, earnestly, telling me that it was a place long ago given over to evil and under the power of grim laws, of which none here have knowledge. And I, I just asked her again, whether she would come to me elsewhere. And she could only stand, silent. It was thus that I came to the place of the Sea of Sleep. So she termed it in her dear speech with me. I had stayed up in my study reading and must have dozed over the book. Suddenly, I awoke and sat upright with a start. For a moment, I looked round with a puzzled sense of something unusual. There was a misty look about the room, giving a curious softness to each table and chair and furnishing. Gradually, the mistiness increased. Growing, as it were, out of nothing, then, slowly, a soft, white light began to glow in the room. The flames of the candles shone through it, palely. I looked from side to side and found that I could still see each piece of furniture, but in a strangely unreal way more as though the ghost of each table and chair had taken the place of the solid article. Gradually, as I looked, I saw them fade and fade until, slowly, they resolved into nothingness. Now, I looked again at the candles. They shone wanly, and, even as I watched, grew more unreal, and so vanished, The room was filled now with a soft, yet luminous white twilight, like a gentle mist of light. Beyond this, I could see nothing. Even the walls had vanished. Presently, I became conscious that a faint, continuous sound pulsed through the silence that wrapped me. I listened intently. It grew more distinct, until it appeared to me that I harked to the breathings of some great sea. I cannot tell how long a space passed thus, but after a while, it seemed that I could see through the mistiness. And slowly, I became aware that I was standing upon the shore of an immense and silent sea. This shore was smooth and long, vanishing to right and left of me in extreme distances. In front swam a still immensity of sleeping ocean. At times it seemed to me that I caught a faint glimmer of light under its surface, but of this I could not be sure. Behind me rose up to an extraordinary height, gaunt, black cliffs. Overhead, the sky was of a uniform cold grey colour, the whole place being lit by a stupendous globe of pale fire that swam a little above the far horizon and shed a foam-like light above the quiet waters. Beyond the gentle murmur of the sea, an intense stillness prevailed. For a long while I stayed there, looking out across its strangeness. Then, as I stared, it seemed that a bubble of white foam floated up out of the depths. And then, even now I know not how it was, I was looking upon, nay, looking into the face of her. I, into her face, into her soul. And she looked back at me with such a commingling of joy and sadness that I ran toward her, blindly, crying strangely to her, in a very agony of remembrance, of terror, of hope. To come to me. Yet, spite of my crying, she stayed out there upon the sea, and only shook her head sorrowfully. But in her eyes was the old earth-light of tenderness, that I had come to know, before all things, ere we were parted. At her pervasiveness, I grew desperate, and essayed to wade out to her. Yet, though I would, I could not. Something, some invisible barrier held me back, and I was fain to stay where I was, and cry out to her in the fullness of my soul. Oh, my darling, my darling. But could say no more, for very intensity. And at that, she came over swiftly and touched me, and it was as though heaven had opened. Yet when I reached out my hands to her, she put me from her with tenderly stern hands, and I was abashed. The Fragments Footnote 2 Here, the writing becomes indecipherable, owing to the damaged condition of this part of the manuscript. Below, I print such fragments as are legible. Editor The Legible Portions of the Mutilated Leaves Through tears, noise of eternity in my ears, we parted. She whom I love Oh my god! I was a river strange and Then I was alone the I knew that I journeyed back once more to the known universe. Presently I emerged from that enormous darkness. I had come among the stars. Last time the sun far and remote, I entered into the gulf that separates our system from the outer suns. As I sped across the dividing dark, I watched steadily the ever-growing brightness and size of our sun. Once, I glanced back to the stars and saw them shift, as it were, in my wake against the mighty background of night. So vast was the speed of my passing spirit. I grew nigher to our system. And now I could see the shine of Jupiter. Later, I distinguished the cold, blue gleam of the earth light. I had a moment of bewilderment. All about the sun, there seemed to be bright objects moving in rapid orbits. Inward. Nigh to the savage glory of the sun, there circled two darting points of light, and further off there flew a blue shining speck that I knew to be the earth. It circled the sun in a space that seemed to be no more than an earth minute. Nearer with great speed, I saw the radiances of Jupiter and Saturn, spinning with incredible swiftness in huge orbits, and ever I drew more nigh, and looked out upon this strange sight, the visible circling of the planets about the Mother Sun. It was as though time had been annihilated for me, so that a year was no more to my unfleshed spirit than is a moment to an Earth-bound soul. The speed of the planets appeared to increase and presently I was watching the sun all ringed about with hair-like circles of different coloured fire, the paths of the planets hurtling at mighty speed about the central flame. The sun grew vast, as though it leapt to meet me. And now I was within the circling of the outer planets, and flitting swiftly toward the place where the Earth, glimmering through the blue splendor of its orbit, as though a fiery mist circled the sun at a monstrous speed. Footnote 3 Note. The severest scrutiny has not enabled me to decipher more of the damaged portion of the manuscript. It commences to be legible again with the chapter entitled The Noise in the Night. Editor. Thank you for listening to the latest instalment of Bobbinable Abominations' serialisation of The House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson. If you have any queries, complaints, advice, questions please feel free to write to me at t-u-o-m-a-s-v-a at outlook.com. Like and subscribe to the YouTube channel or wherever you find your podcasts. It's always very much appreciated. See you next week.